everybody, how you doing? Well, that's good. Welcome to Broad Street Hockey Presents Yelling About Sports. That's right, your favorite debate show is back. My name is Bill Matz. I'm your director of fun and games for the evening, afternoon, whenever the hell you're listening to this. Time doesn't exist anymore. Days of the week don't exist anymore. They really uh, We were going to record this yesterday. I said, fuck it, and we're doing it now. Joining me is my co-host from TheAthletic.com, Charlie O'Connor. Yeah, I'm, I'm slowly losing my mind. We're, we're getting to that point. <laughs> it's really, it's getting there, fam. And uh, I didn't think, I didn't think things could get much worse. But today we had, perhaps, maybe, uh, I don't want to say the worst, the the biggest casualty of of Corona. But goddamn, man, the XFL. I'm I'm bummed. I gotta tell you. <laughs> You know, one thing that annoyed me today on Twitter, um, and I guess this is probably a good way to start, even though it's not a technical topic. Yeah. What yeah. annoyed me today on Twitter was how many people were, um, you know, when the XFL thing got announced that it was getting, this, that they were suspending operations and everyone was getting laid off. They're like, ha, 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 who didn't see this coming? It's like, they they literally had to stop playing. Like, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if the league would have worked or not, but it very well might have had not all of sports had to stop in the middle of this league's first season when they were bleeding money because they were trying to build a fan base. I mean, the TV numbers were what they were. They weren't great, but, like, no minor league sport is going to be great. They were on national TV. The attendance was good. Social media engagement was good. Gambling, which is why the whole goddamn thing exists, was really good on it. I made a bunch of money betting on the XFL after, like, week one because it was very obvious who the good teams were. Uh, Listen... It's not like I don't think Vince McMahon's going to get bailed out of the supposed half a million or half a billion of his own money he put into this thing. Um, It's not like, you know, that part, whatever, I don't give a shit. But, like, a lot of people did just lose their jobs. And, I don't know, I support the idea of athletes getting to chase their dream a little longer. Like, P.J. Walker got signed out of the league. I mean, it's a... It was a decent spot, and I thought it could be good for experimentation. I really like their extra point rules, things like that. Uh, I, I think football needs something like it. It's a shame that it got shut down because of this. But yeah, the most annoying thing is people like celebrating it. Like, I, You can not like wrestling, not like Vince McMahon, whatever, but why don't you want more football? I, I think it honestly goes beyond that. I think there's just a lot of people that just they celebrate the fact that they were right. It's like, aha, I knew this league was going to fail. And it's like, look, you might have eventually been proven right, but you can't say that this proves you right. Because the only reason why this league is out of money now is because they're literally not allowed to play in their first season when, like, this is the, the XFL is essentially a startup company. That's what they are. They are a startup company that happens to be a sports league. And the worst thing for a startup company is when you're three months into your first year and, like, you then can't do anything. Like, no shit you're going to fail. Yeah, so that, it absolutely, the social media reaction to it largely annoyed me today, but I just think it's a shame. I thought the XFL was a decent idea, and, uh, you know, it's over. Fuck you, people. (laughs) All right, so, Charlie, it has been a month uh, since the last Flyers game, so I thought we could really kick things off today uh, with a little bit of orange and black, and maybe plug the Athletic uh, along the way while we're doing it. So uh, I've been reading some of your stuff, Chuck, and I gotta say, I think you got a future in this business, maybe. Um, <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. <laughs> you wrote some articles uh, the last few days, last few weeks, breaking down two things I wanted to get deeper into. 
Uh, one was the Flyers' best free agent signings of the uh, of the last decade of the 2010s, and as well as Ron Hextall's best draft picks. So I wanted to get into it with you first, and I'm just going to give you the opportunity to defend yourself on this one. Your free agents, your top three were Kevin Hayes at three, which is criminally low, Bob at two, Sergei Bobrovsky, and Yager at one. Charlie, defend yourself. Well, I don't know how you can say Kevin Hayes is the best free agent signing of the last 10 years when we're one year into his contract and there's a damn good chance that by the end of the contract we're going to hate it. Like, I, I think Kevin Hayes, the signing in the here and now, is awesome. But I can't say that's the best signing of the last 10 years because we're getting what always was going to be the best year of the deal. Like, we're all biased right now because, yeah, he's great in the first year of the deal because when you sign a guy in his late 20s to a seven-year deal, the first year of the deal is supposed to be great. It's years five, six, and seven that are supposed to suck, and we haven't even come close to figuring out just how bad they're going to suck. Maybe they'll suck. Maybe they won't. Actions now, consequences later. What I do know, what I do know is we never got to years five, six, and seven of Yager and Bob because their time here was cut short and ultimately they accomplished nothing. Kevin Hayes, at least, now, you know, the season might not continue, but at least has helped facilitate a cultural change after the worst period in franchise history. I think you can make a case that Yager facilitated a cultural change. I mean, Yager was, I think Yager was a big reason why Claude Giroux had the breakout season that he had. And he brought that veteran ability to kind of teach the young guys how to prepare for games and then how to play in games, to be that presence on the bench. So I think Yager absolutely brought just as much of that. And you could say, well, yeah, they only got him for one year, but that was the contract. The contract was one year and that was a slam dunk holy shit, amazing one-year contract. The point I'm making with the Hayes deal is that by signing him to seven years, you're putting yourself in the position where you're going to have a bad part of that deal. And then you're probably going to have to look at the deal as as a whole and say, okay, well, did the good years outweigh the bad? Whereas with Yager, all it all was just pure good. There was nothing bad about that deal. The only bad thing was that Holmgren wasn't didn't put himself in a position to, to resign him, which objectively was dumb. But the deal itself, the one-year deal in a vacuum, was brilliant. All right. I was really hoping I would have this figured out by the time <laughs> you finished that sentence. And now I'm trying to prove you wrong with facts. We always know how that goes. I'm more of a, I'm more of a feelings guy, personally. God damn it, Go Game with your Logs. gut. It's just not letting me look at his goddamn Game Logs. Come on. Come on, Hockey Reference. We got this. Because I want to say there was a bad part of the Yager contract. We just uh, we just don't look back on it the same way. Because we liked him so much. It doesn't really look like my argument's going to hold up, though. I mean, he Shoot. finished with, what, like 55 points that year? Which yeah, I thought, he really, I thought he really petered out in, like, February. Uh, it does seem like he might have run out of gas a little bit here. Uh, 16 points in 30 games, so he was still pretty decent in the second half of the season. Yeah, he definitely um, was better in the first half, I remember right. that, but he, he got a bunch of points in the playoff series against the Penguins, so it's not like he was totally finished. If you don't want to say it's Hayes, which, all right, we're not even full, we're not even fully through year one. Danny Briere! Okay, well, Briere wasn't signed in the last 10 years. 
Oh, right. This is the last 10 years. Yeah. So that knocks <sighs> him out. No, Briere. And Briere's interesting because, like, the Flyers kind of got lucky with him to a degree because they got all the good years and they got one bad year and then they were able to use a compliance buyout on it. So that kind of played out perfectly for them in terms of, you know, they the only real the only year he had when he was actively poor was the half season of the lockout year when he was very clearly on his last legs and then they had a compliance buyout and it was like, "Okay, see you, Danny." Yeah. And he wasn't Chris Drury. So they really won twice there. Very true. Very true. Uh. Or or um was wasn't there another guy in that on that year? Was that the Brad Richards year too? Uh, I really, uh, yeah, it, that sounds, that sounds like it's true. All right, I'm trying, all right, free agents, who else was there? I'm just trying to think of your list and anyone you might have left off. Well, there was JVR. Yeah, JVR, uh, Raffle was, was in the last 10 years, right? He yeah, hasn't Ra- been around for 10 years. Yeah, Raffle was on the list. He was pretty high, actually. Um, Talbot was on there. Because uh, he was he was interesting because like the back half of that deal would have been terrible, but they traded him away, so they, they yeah. only got the good parts. Just the fact, like, and we all know what Hextall was doing, so there's not going to be like a ton of great ones in the last ten years, for, especially for the last half of the decade. But man, the fact that Max Talbot makes the list really shows <laughs> you, like, that's a great. That's uh, that's basically yeah. They didn't really have too many good free agents. Not many, no. I mean, I, I even had Belmar on the list because, truthfully, like, them, them digging Belmar up, it worked pretty well. No, that, it, that was a good—for for an international free agent signing, that's fine. That's yeah. great. Oh, fourth liner. Cool. He's still in the league and doing pretty damn well for himself. Yeah, like, I put, I put in, the, uh, in the article that the thing that kills you about Belmar in retrospect is you say to yourself, man, like, this is a guy who, before the season was paused, was playing on the third line at age 35 for the Colorado Avalanche. How, like, he could have been legitimately a solid bottom sixer had yeah. they not decided, hey, your best friend until the end of days is Chris Vandeveld, who was not, um, he was not an NHL player. He just wasn't. That, no, no, he he never was a full-time NHL player until we made him one, and then his career abruptly ended. Uh, no, well, he, I was he hoping. May have, he may have been an NHL player, but he wasn't an NHL player. It's like Zach Ronaldo. Like, yeah, yeah, Zach Ronaldo played in the NHL. He was not an NHL caliber player ever. Ronaldo had NHL legs, baby. He could skate. <laughs> He could skate at this level. No, I was hoping. I was hoping you would say the thing that kills you about Belmar is he was paired with Vandeveld. Yeah, Vandeveld. He didn't make your list, did he? No, no. Okay. He did make my numbers list, like best numbers, because he's literally the only flyer to ever ever wear seventy six oh, in a regular beautiful. season game. That's beautiful. All right, so this is when I wanted to talk about Briere. I didn't realize because I, you know, made the outline today. Obviously, I don't know what's on it. <laughs> Who would you say is the Flyers' all-time greatest free agent signing, and why isn't it Kevin Hayes? So we discussed this before the show. I asked, does this count undrafted free agents, like guys who were signed as prospects or whatever and then immediately kind of jumped to the NHL, or are we just looking at traditional UFAs? And you said that undrafted free agents count. So I would say the be- if we're counting undrafted free agents, the Flyers' all-time greatest free agent signing is Tim Kerr. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. That's that's a tough one to argue. Um, shit, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Briere. Okay. I'm gonna ha- just he 
after a 22-60 and 60 season, he chose us. I don't care if we're just like, here's a bunch of money and we're the Flyers. He still made the choice to come here uh, after the Flyers had just had the worst season in franchise history. So I'll always credit him for that. Um, I know you have other numbers that say differently, but he was clutch as shit. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like... I don't disagree the Breer signing was great, and as I said, it worked out perfectly for the Flyers because they then could compliance buy on him just as it got really bad. But if you're talking about traditional free agent signings, I think the Tiemann signing is better than the Breer signing. And I get the clutch element of it, but I just think Tiemann was a better player, all-around player, in his time in Philadelphia than Breer was. I was I was thinking about Hartnell and Breer, and were, would they both have been unrestricted? Um... Yeah, I, I guess I mean what in my list I counted guys who they traded right they traded for their rights. Yeah, that's I just because like, yeah. if, if you're not if if you're not counting them then you can't count Hayes because Hayes they traded no. for his rights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I wasn't sure if they were both. Yeah, because why else would why else would uh, Nashville trade him if they weren't going to be unrestricted free agents yeah. after the after the rights expired? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Team and, team uh, and hard, hard to argue. Team and that's a tough one to argue. I always forget about him because they traded for his rights. What do you got next, Bill? Uh, what do we have next? <laughs> I thought you were saying something, <laughs> and I realized, like, no, he's not talking. Uh, all right, so that's the all-time greatest free agent signings. What I want to get into now is your Hexie's best draft picks. I thought this list, uh, we've talked about this one a little bit more recently with the top 25, under 25, and everything. But uh, your top three, again, hard to argue, but there's, I mean, there's some other good ones in there. Uh, you have Carter Hart at number one, TK at number two, and Oscar Limblom at number three. I'm just going to come right out and tell you, I, I think it has to be Limblom. A fifth-round pick turning into what he became, just if a fifth-round pick becomes an NHLer, that's a hell of a pick, let alone become a guy who looks like he can score 20-25 goals for you. I just think that's an awesome value pick. Hart, listen, we know he's the franchise goalie. I get it. But... I don't know. They took a couple of players in front of him. If they knew what he was going to be, take him that or like take him earlier. I mean, but you can make the same case for Limblom. That if you knew Limblom was going to be as good as he was going to be, why did you wait until the fifth round? Because he was a project that they had confidence in that they could solve. I mean, look, the way I look at it is the fact that they they took Limblom later and the fact they took Hart later actually is makes it even shrewder of a pick because like I think uh, I think Namita did a, an analysis of this and basically like which makes all the sense in the world, the ideal like if you're talking about the ideal draft, the ideal draft is not necessarily that like okay, well Claude Giroux was, uh, should have been the first or second overall pick in that draft, so ideally you would have taken Claude Giroux second overall. No, the ideal draft is you take the best players as late as you possibly could have taken them while still getting them because that means that you're maximizing just how many player, good players you can get in the draft. So for me, you spend a fifth-round pick on Oscar Lindblom, maybe you had a second-round grade on him, but you decided no. We can wait until the fifth round and still get this guy. And I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying that in, if you're talking about draft efficiency, waiting, and this this applies to Hart too, 
maybe they had a first round grade on Carter Hart, but they decided, no, we can wait and we can get Pascal LaBerge and we can get Wade Allison before uh, before Carter Hart. I don't remember what exactly the order was of those two. I right? think it's LaBerge, Hart, and then Allison. Okay, so Hart was the second one. But my point is, is that like you could say that Hart should have been taken before all those guys. Yeah, he probably should have if you're talking about total level of talent but then you don't get two other prospects and yeah they might not have panned out but you still want to give yourself more shots at that dartboard so to me waiting on a guy and still getting him is actually better than like reaching for a guy and being proven right here's my thing with Hart, and it's unfair to me they got two shots at the dartboard before it and they somehow put the dart in their toe on both of them so it's not fair but i ho- i hold Ruby and I hurt uh, and I hold the Burge against Hart as a draft pick. See, I think that's totally unfair. I don't think that's Hart's fault at all. Ah, makes I mean, the you, pick. You, it you just got, sullies the pick for me. The rest your, of the you ju- got your franchise goalie in the second round. That's a monster pick. Yeah, goalies don't go in the first round. Good job. You took the best goalie when he was there. Like I don't know. That was kind of a no brainer to me. How is that a no brainer? Because he's the a, most decorated goalie prospect ever. Yeah, if it was such a no-brainer, somebody else would have taken him. Other GMs being bad doesn't weigh into this. <laughs> it absolutely weighs Most into it. Most of them are bad at their jobs. Look at the league. It absolutely weighs into it because they're the people you're competing against. TK, I guess, um, like, I want to put P- Provy in this top three, but that was, like, the no-brainer. And if they had gone, like, with the other defensemen available, probably would have been just as good. Um... TK, they had to trade. Uh, they had to trade up for him. They had that pick because of the Coburn trade. So, yeah, I think that one works at two. Uh, All time picks. It has to be Clark in the second round, right? Yeah, yeah, that's probably your best. I mean, the thing is, though, the Flyers have the Flyers have made a lot of really good draft picks. Like, I, I agree that Clark has to be it because not only because he's probably the best player ever to play for the franchise but also just because the primary reason he slipped was because he was a diabetic diabetic yeah like it had nothing to do with his talent it was just purely that oh well some teams don't trust this guy because he's a type 1 diabetic and because people don't like believe he's going to be able to play well enough for long enough to justify that high of a pick and the flyers are event- finally we're just like well screw this he's the best player available we're taking him we'll figure it out but like the, I, the the Drew pick has to be up there. I mean that was and and hilariously, I don't know if like <laughs> Clarky gets a a minus on that because it wasn't who he wanted in the first place, and he didn't even say his name right. But no, that 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 pick is great because it is Clarky, and because he didn't even know who they were taking. <laughs> He's like, wait, who? No, I want Chris Stewart. <laughs> well, I think they want it. I don't know for sure, but I think uh, I think they want a Sanguinetti, right? They want a I local think, kid. I think that's I think that's the one I've heard. Yeah. That they wanted, well, first they wanted Trevor Lewis, who again, like, wow, they wanted him over Claude Giroux. What a but, draft. But, uh, and then they wanted Sanguinetti, I think. And then Sanguinetti got taken right before Giroux. So Clarky goes up and it's like, wait, who are we taking again? <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's great shit. And then he becomes like the franchise player. You, you can never predict this shit. All right. So this is, and we're going to talk about predictions a little bit here now, Charlie, because uh, something I talked to Kelly about last week was some of our wrong opinions over the years. I know, I know, I'm pretty much always right, but every now and then, uh, you know, you have a bad one. So I saw an article on ESPN this morning uh, about the one prospect from each baseball franchise 
that they were sure was going to be a star. Now, some of them turned out to be. Some of them had injury-plagued careers and never reached there. Some of them were just out, outright busts. So, of course, I scrolled right down to the Phillies, hoping I wouldn't see him. But there he was. Number nine, Dominic Brown. Uh, they said they also considered Pat Burrell and Juan Samuel. Pat Burrell's a very interesting one because uh, he was well, a first or a second overall pick. But I think he was man, first overall, right? Yeah, I believe so. But like Dom Brown, uh, like he was supposed to be the guy who kept this thing going. He was the next great one. They were just going to throw him out in right field and everything was going to be okay. And he had that great May. He had that awesome month of May that one time, and the rest of his career was pretty much terrible. But, like, it wasn't just us. It wasn't just the Phillies and Phillies fans. Like, Baseball America had him ranked over Mike Trout at one point. So it wasn't just us. So I wanted to uh, look, and reading this today, it made me think of this uh, topic again. So in any sport, Charlie, who is the guy you missed biggest on, one way or the other? You know, it's funny we're talking about Phillies because I feel like like, during that stretch when the Phillies were really good from, I guess it would be, like, when they were relevant, from, like, 2006 through 2011, probably is yeah. when they started be, becoming really relevant. I got high on pretty much every single one of their top prospects. And if you think about it, pretty much none of them panned out, even the ones they traded. Like, I remember being super-duper high on, on, like, Kyle Drabeck. Oh, yeah. And, like, Zach Collier and all those freaking guys. And, That's and, the— None of them pan- like I never I never liked Anthony Hewitt. I thought that was a terrible pick because they just drafted a guy who didn't know how to play baseball pretty much. But like I love Zach Collier, like I like Joe Savory, like they had so many guys, like Michael Taylor, guys Oh, Michael away. Taylor, five yeah. tools. Yeah, like guys that I was convinced were like going to keep, you know, be the next round of stars. And it's bizarre to think about just how many of those guys failed to pan out. Like the one of the best prospects out of that group ended up being like Travis Darno. And what is he like a league average catcher? Yeah, uh, I was just going to say, like, Carlos Carrasco actually ended up being, like, a decent three, and he's... Yeah, he's but, a, and, and it took him, like, ten years yeah, to get there. It was, he was a it, bust for years. Yeah, it was a while before he was actually good. You brought up Kyle Drabeck. Like, the reason they get Cliff Lee at the deadline in 09 is because they didn't want to move Kyle Drabeck. And then in the offseason, they're like, screw it. And then they went and got Doc anyway, so... <laughs> Like, you know what? That's every time. That's the thing is watching all those guys. I loved uh, Lou Marson. I, I love also, Lou Marson too. Yeah. Lou, yeah. Oh, dude. He was going to be the, the next franchise catcher. I, lo- I I thought we lost a lot when we gave up Lou Marson for Cliff Lee. I'll tell you that. Um, I was trying to think of some flyers on this. The Phillies are great because there's so many. And now, like, when people, oh, I don't want to give up this and this to get Chris Bryant. I'm like, dude, it's a Phillies prospect. He ain't going to work out. Like, <laughs> look at all those guys they traded from like that time period. Like, I can't name anyone who was in the Hunter Pence trade. Yeah. Yeah, that's really fair. It's funny, though. And, like, I, the only – when I say this, I'm going to sound like an asshole, and I totally, I totally understand it. But there really weren't that many Flyers prospects that I was super high on that I ended up being wrong on. Like the well, guys, the guys that I really fall in love with, they tend to be good. Like I guess like Vorobiev counts, but like I never, I I never fell in love with him. It was just that I thought he was, I thought he was a solid prospect, a, a solid prospect, a cool like under the radar guy. But when when a player really catches my eye, they tend to pan out. Like I can't think of anybody that I was convinced was going to be huge. 
and then ended up just sucking. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and like in terms of the Flyers, because that's who we follow most closely, like having prospects is kind of a new thing for Flyers fans. Yeah, yeah. You know, like Simone Gagne and Justin Williams, I remember. Brian Boucher, I remember. But ev- like everyone else, it was just like, you know what draft picks are? Draft picks are currency for us to get really good players. Like that's what they always were for me. Uh, until, you know, they decided, oh, that's, you, you can't run a team like that anymore. There's, there's a salary cap uh, we need to draft. So I'm, I'm really, uh, most of them, I don't even know if you consider them prospects, but just guys who were on the Phantoms that really looked like they were going to work out. Uh, that's Col- Colin Forbes and Andy Delmore are probably my biggest two. Okay, okay. I, I liked Peter White a lot. Um, so I well, guess he I, fucking counts. fifty goal scorer. He was like the MVP. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but I'm trying to. Yeah, it's uh, hockey's tough because I feel like well, the Flyers have been having a pretty good hit rate on their first rounders too. I know I was just complaining about German Rubsov, but like other than him, they've been doing okay in that regard. They always were good first round. Like that was the thing with the Flyers was that even before Hextall. They always drafted well in the first round. It's just they never, number one, they traded away a lot of their first rounders. They, they didn't always draft in the first round. Number two, they pretty much never actually hit on picks beyond like the second or third round. That was what made the Limblom pick so cool because it was for the first time in years they got a guy who actually looked like a stud and they didn't have to spend a first, second, or third round pick on him. But like you go back, pretty much everybody they take in the first round at the very least, is an NHL player. Like, they had a couple... They they, they missed on uh, Wawitka, um, the defenseman. Oh, yeah, Jeff Wawitka. I always had to create him in a video game. Yeah, and um, and then the, the goalie they took, uh, Peltier. Oh, dude, he was and, he was a and, monster for the Phantoms, though. I'll tell you yeah, that. Yeah, they, they missed on Pel- and Peltier, and they missed on uh, Ouellette. Those Ouellette, like, yeah. Me those and Kelly. were the guys. But, like, aside from that, I mean, everybody else they took in the first round pretty much were good. Me and Kelly talked about Peltier and Olette last week. Really? Uh, I'm trying to th- like, yeah. Time again is one I'll always, uh, I'll always own up to because I okay. said on WIP that he was going to be as good or better than you know JVR. Um, <laughs> nice. That that worked out. All right. So those are our misses. You know, we're usually right, Charlie. I think that's what this comes down to. Yeah. Um, and when we're wrong, like. It's Baseball America's fault, not mine, that I own a Don Brown jersey. All right, so uh, the UFC, Charlie, had a a plan to run a show, uh, run a pay-per-view event on a a Native American casino ground, basically, that is unregulated because it's, you know, Native American ground. Uh, And that has, they put the kibosh on that. Uh, ESPN and Disney have stepped in to basically tell Dana White, you don't get to just do whatever you want to do. And people are like, you know, this is probably the right call. Uh, Dana White's talking about an island. He wants an exclusive island where it'll just be the fighters and him uh, having an event. And they're trying to put a stop to that. Listen, it's not a good idea to have gatherings right now. But there are two nationally televised pro wrestling companies continuing to film weekly shows and pay-per-views. If performers agree to participate, is it okay to put on an event in an empty arena? I don't see why not. So, I I don't I don't agree at all with the uh, 
like do it on a on a Native American reservation thing. That was what they were trying to do, right? They were because yeah. it was yeah. it was uh, it was Native owned land, so it was like not technically following the rules of the United States, so that they could do it. Like that to me is is insane. That that's insane. On the other hand, like this island thing is one of those like so crazy. I kind of like it. Kind of. I fucking I love the island idea. <laughs> like the, the the problem with it. The, the big issue here, truthfully, is that if you're going to do that kind of thing, you need tests. Like, you need to be testing for this shit. Because eventually, like, it's not like these people are going to... Um, think, like, I guess you could pull it off if you basically have it so... Because the big concern I would have is that they fight, they have the thing, but they don't know it. They come back home and they spread it. Like, because you're fighting, you're around these people. But, like, if you could work out a thing where basically everybody who goes to this island then has to self-quarantine for, like, the next two and a half weeks, and, like, the UFC just shacks them all up in some, like, hotel or something, you know, with everybody way apart just so they can, you know, and, and treats them like gold. Like, I wouldn't have a problem with it. You just, they have, they damn well better be taking the right precautions. And I also, the hilarity of this island thing just cracks me up because it's so Dana White. It's so oh, yeah. ridiculous. Uh- I freaking love the island idea. Um, that's you said. Like they need the test. That's like for for WrestleMania filming and all the stuff WWE is doing. Basically, as you walk in the door, they take your temperature. At first, I was like, "Oh, they're gonna test him." McMahon and Trump, they're boys. You know, he's got tests. He's got tests. And then the report is like, "Yeah, they're just taking their temperature when they come in." Like. Um, Mike Mizan and The Miz showed up with a temperature, and they're like, sorry, you can't wrestle. And so he had to be replaced. But everyone else was allegedly good. I was like, ah, you can be asymptomatic and be carrying it, though. So, I don't, like, you actually, you do need the tests, I guess. I mean, they definitely help. If you're either, if you're going to do something like that, you either need the tests, or you need to do what I said, which is basically just, like, after yeah. the thing, self-quarantine. Quarantine everybody, everybody. For, for, yeah. for three weeks, and then let them go. And I guess if there's enough money involved, and I'm not just talking about the fighters. Like, I'm talking about the camera people. I'm talking about the producers. Like, everybody gets self-quarantine. And, hey, if Dana White's willing to pay to, you know, put everybody up in the lap of luxury for three weeks to have them deal with being, you know, away from civilization for three weeks to make sure that they're not they're not contagious, then, yeah, I'm not opposed to it. I think there's a way to do it. And probably something like combat sports is the easiest to do because like the thing with hockey for example which is always going to make it tough is number one you got you got teams that have um you know that have 20 players dressed on both sides so that's 40 people right there then you have production teams you have camera people you have medical people that are around you presumably have at least a few media members that are allowed to be there you know, it it starts to add up very quickly. I would assume for a combat sport, like, what do you really need? You need the two fighters. You need a, you need a ref. Um, and then you need some camera people. Like, you, you might be able to do a bare-bones thing with, a, like, 20 or so people. And then you need medical people there as well. But you might be able to get away with, like, you know, 20, 25 people. And if you do the self-quarantining, then maybe, maybe it works. And shit, like, you're quarantined on this private island. Like, just put everyone up. Be like, guess what? This is a three-week vacation. You get to fight, and then, you know, hang out. I love it. What do you think about this uh, this single locale idea for the NHL and the NBA and then the Cactus League and Grapefruit League for baseball? Like, team sports, 
it seems different to me. Like I did, I did. There was an article in Deadspin that made me laugh because the NBA is talking about doing Vegas as just single location for the rest of their season, and the NHL is talking about Grand Forks, North Dakota. <laughs> like, and if there's ever a better like explanation or like description of the difference between the two leagues, that's it. But Vegas, if the NBA's there, is going to attract a crowd. At hockey in Grand Forks, no one's traveling to that. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it's pr- it sounds pretty safe to me. Oh man, that's the uh, safest way to do it. Uh, yeah, so well, literally uh, slap them in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I'm not huge on it. Uh, it just team sports, like you said, just seem different. Uh, I don't know. I don't care about a crowd reaction to uh, to yeah combat sport, but there's just something weird about no fans at a team game. All right, Charlie. And this thing about uh, about you know what what are crowds going to look like when maybe this thing is over? People are are curious about how everyone's going to react when the when the restrictions are finally lifted. Well, Seton Hall University put out the results of a poll they did. Uh, it said sixty two percent of respondents who identified as sports fans said they wouldn't attend a game until there's a vaccine. Whenever we get this thing ramped back up, do you think people are going to bombard stadiums or there will be more of a precautious return to the old ways? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I really don't. Um, I, plus, I just don't know how long it's going to take for sports to come back, period. Yeah. Um, I, it's hard for me to imagine they would just not have sports until there's a vaccine. Like, I would think the sports leagues would find some way to do stuff. But who knows? You, you really don't know at this point. Um. I it would not shock me if uh, if like you have half like half full arenas. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't shock me if people are just you know a lot of people who normally don't go because I mean shit. Look at the friggin' Flyers. The Flyers were like one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, and they still weren't selling out their games until like the very very end of this. And that was with no virus going around and with a team playing out of its mind well for the better part of two months. Now, add in the fact that everybody, you know, everybody is understandably scared they might get sick or it might infect their family and might, might infect at-risk people if they get it. Yeah, I, I would be shocked if you have sellouts all over the place. But I do think people will still go. I'm, you know, There will still be enough people to go to make it so they're not playing in front of you know, no one. But yeah, I could I could see the crowds being, you know, much more sparse than usual. Yeah, I could see it. That's yeah, without like the idea of a vaccine, I don't know. Like I love going to games and stuff. I I enjoy it thoroughly. I don't go to as many as I used to. Uh, but I still really love it. I was gonna go to that game the Sunday before it got the Sunday when it got canceled. It got canceled the eleventh or twelfth, the NHL season. Something I had tickets like for later that week. I was going. I was like, screw it, Wh- whatever, it's the flu, I'll be fine. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, that would have been really dumb. I am glad they told me, no, it's canceled. Yeah, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. And it's just hard to say as well because we don't know what life is going to be like. Yeah. You know, it, it, the, the, the thing that frustrates me the hell about this whole deal from a, from a U.S. perspective is that the only, like, you have, you have the people in government screaming that, like, well, we have to get back to work. We have to open things back up. You know, we can't do this forever. And, like, on some level, I'm sympathetic to that argument because I do agree that we can't just self-quarantine for 12 straight months. But, like, the reason why the easiest path to getting out of that is mass testing. 
and we still don't have enough fucking tests. So like, why if if you're so if you're so adamant that we have to all get back to work as quickly as possible, why are you not just focusing on in every way possible mass producing tests? Like that that should be if that really is your focus, that should be your primary focus is just somehow getting to the point where we have 300 million tests. Now, I don't know how long that's going to take, but like set a date. You know, come up with 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 a, a, an action plan as to how long it's going to take us to get these this many tests. Because the only way I see us getting back to normal without a vaccine or something close to it is just doing these mass tests. And if we're not focusing on getting to these mass tests, then the people who are obsessed with the idea of everybody getting back to normal aren't actually doing anything to help us get back to normal. This has been correct opinions with Charlie O'Connor. It's mind-boggling. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I, I will say, like, I'm not, like, in a rush to go back to a stadium. But if the NHL figures out their season and there's a parade because the Flyers won the Stanley Cup, I'm going. I don't give a shit. <laughs> I will get whatever illness is in the air. I'm going to the parade. I, I mean, I would think if that were to happen, like, if the Flyers, if the season were to start again, the Flyers would win the Stanley Cup, I would guess that they wouldn't have a parade. And then they would just save it. They would save it for when this is done, and then we would just have, like, the biggest party known to man. Oh, my God. Combine the Mummers and the Flyers Stanley Cup? Holy shit. Oh, baby. That would be awesome. That's, it would suck because I want to see, uh, like, I want to see TK and Kevin Hayes out at the bars celebrating, yeah. like, the Cats. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, do we have anything else, Charlie? I don't, I don't think um, this was the end of the outline, right? Yeah, I guess that was pretty much everything. All right. uh, I think that's it. That's all the time we have for you in yelling about sports this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out. We're pumping out content for you guys, Uh, me and Charlie. I haven't picked the movie yet, Charlie, but I'm working on a couple of things. I got a couple of ideas. I'll be on uh, other stuff with Chuck uh, uh, next week, and we'll be doing all the stuff we've been doing. So if you've been enjoying it, thanks for listening. If you haven't, tough shit. We're going to keep doing it. Uh, My name is Bill Matz for Charlie O'Connor. Have a great week, everybody.